Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you were here last weekend, we started a new mini-series called The Story of Power, uh, where we're going to be looking at the entire book of Acts for the next four weeks until the very end of October. And the reason we're, we've coined this series, mini-series, The Story of Power, is because the book of Acts essentially documents more than any other book in the Bible, the explosive exponential growth of the church really from its very inception. See, the New Testament starts off with Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And then Acts is, very, is the next uh, book in your Bible, and that explains what happens once Jesus resurrects and ascends into heaven, and that is the very beginning of the church. The church isn't all throughout the Bible. It starts right when Jesus leaves, then sends the Holy Spirit and so Acts 1, what we looked at last week, just to give a little summary, or maybe if you weren't here, Acts 1 is where Jesus calls his 12 disciples and says, I want you to make disciples of all nations, starting in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts 2, we see that practically take place. The disciples literally making disciples, what that looks like practically. And Acts 2 essentially documents this earliest stage of the church, how it's growing, spreading, multiplying how it just took off and did not stop and how it hasn't stopped really ever since. You know, what we're doing here today on Sunday morning at 945 in 2020, 2,000 years later, it can all be traced back to what happened in Acts chapter 2. What we're doing today can be traced all the way back to that chapter in the Bible. The best way I can really describe how the early church started and spread to pull on a, a powerful, relevant metaphor from uh, this year is to think of it kind of how a virus spreads, if you will, all right? I know that uh, in 2020, we're pretty aware of uh, this, how it happens perhaps more than ever before, how a virus spreads and grows. So for example, COVID-19, what we're all familiar with, it started in Wuhan, China, in one small wet market, or if you're a conspiracy theorist, it was cooked up in a lab by a government-funded something or other. Um, but from that location, it spread exponentially, literally covering the globe in three months. Three months' time, everything changed in the whole world. You've never been to China, or maybe you haven't never been to China. I haven't. But what happened in China has affected us in Houston today. We didn't have to go there. It came to us. And similarly, like how the Bible describes the growth of the church— we're not in Jerusalem or Galilee or Antioch where Jesus lived and walked and where the church first started. You know, that was 2,000 years ago, but that has still reached us here today in Houston right now. But contrary to how a virus would spread and infect the world with disease and death and sickness, this gospel movement would, would grow and spread and bring life and healing and hope to a sick and dying world instead. And so to pull on the analogy a little bit more, uh, we're specifically going to be looking at the symptoms, if you will, of what made the early church at the very beginning so infectious, so contagious to so many people, and what that looks like for our lives as well. So I hope you found your way to uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and start in verse 1, and we're actually going to be going through the entire chapter today, and we're going to be moving through it because there's some important things that all hinge together. Okay, so let's jump in. This is verse number 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived... They, the disciples, they all gathered together in one place. All right, I know that we're only one verse in, but for context's sake, what is Pentecost? Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't heard it. The word Pentecost is where you get the, the Christian denomination Pentecostal 
from. Okay, maybe you're familiar with that, or you grew up in a Pentecostal environment. It's a denomination of Christianity that focuses more on, I guess you could say, the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues. We're going to look at that briefly today. Some of you are like getting a little nervous. Um, you'll see. Uh, but first, what, what does Pentecost mean, though, by definition? What, is it, what does it mean? We would assume that it might mean like a big spiritual experience, right? You know, that's a good guess, but it's actually not true. Pentecost, by definition, means 50th. 50th. Penta means five, you know, like a pentagon has five sides. Penta means five. And it gets the name from the fact that it was the 50th day after Passover. Pentecost was the 50th day after Passover, right? Well, what's so significant about the 50th day after Passover? It seems kind of arbitrary. Well, this was an important date for the Jews back then because every single year they would celebrate Passover every year. And then after Passover, they would celebrate the Pentecost, which was 50 days after Passover every single year. And the Pentecost, the 50th day after Passover, stood for the spring harvest, the spring harvest. So the, the, the 50th day after Passover was generally the time where they would have the big spring harvest for the year and they would celebrate and give thanks to God and worship for the fact that he had provided for the coming year. So this, this day, Pentecost would have, they'd have a big celebration called the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Harvest. So in an agrarian agricultural society, maybe this doesn't like register to us, harvest, what does that mean? The spring harvest was like everything. So if you're in finance, this is like bonus season. Or if you're a tax accountant, it's like April 15th. Or You, you kind of know what I'm saying. It would mean provision. And according to Jewish law, what made Pentecost so significant is that Jewish men from all over the world that were spread out, that weren't in Jerusalem, they're all over the world, they were required to make a pilgrimage into Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Harvest together with everybody else. So they would thank God together, and they'd go back to their general spots all over the world. So on this particular day of the year, on Pentecost, there would be Jews from every single kind of nationality, language, background, and nation on earth all coming in to Jerusalem on that one day. So that's the context. Keep this in mind as we kind of move forward through the passage. Verse 2, let's keep going. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they, the disciples, were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, so not literally fire, but as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All right, this might sound a little bit strange at first. I'll understand that. We're going to see why this picture, though, is so important. Let's keep moving, though, for time's sake. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven, every single nation, right? This makes sense because it was Pentecost after all. They were there for the celebration of the harvest. Verse six, keep going. And at this sound, the multitude came together, the big sound of the mighty Russian wind, the Holy Spirit coming, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them, the disciples, speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished and saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Ilamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Phlyethria, I don't know if I pronounced that one correctly, Egypt and the parts of Libya beyond the Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed at this, saying, uh, well, what exactly does this mean? 
But others were mocking them and saying, oh, they're just filled with some new wine. They've had a little bit of the, you know, the good stuff and they're feeling a little drunk. That's what's going on here. Because clearly when you get drunk, you start speaking Korean. That, you know, um, <laughs> never seen that happen. And I went to college. Uh, all right. So what's going on here? What, what's going on here? The disciples were together in prayer for 10 days. They were waiting for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit. And on the day of Pentecost in particular, he does so. So the Holy Spirit comes, empowers the disciples to start speaking in tongues, speaking in different languages that they did not know, but was fluent and coherent in someone else's native tongue. So some of you, if you have a connection to the Pentecostal church, perhaps what comes to mind when you think of speaking in tongues is like this babbling, incoherent, muttering spiritual language, not Korean or Spanish or German or whatever. Well, here, as we see on the day of Pentecost, the very first time there was speaking in tongues, it was not some kind of indiscernible spiritual language. Instead, these tongues are actual languages. They're literal languages empowered by the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel with other people at this very particular moment in history where all of them were gathered together for this time, which means The overarching thrust of this passage, listen, is not primarily about speaking in tongues, nor is it definitely not about speaking in tongues in a spiritual language type either. That's just not present. What this is saying is it's all about world evangelism. The thrust of this passage is world evangelism. It's not speaking in tongues. It's not not like having a big spiritual experience. It's world evangelism. God waited until the Pentecost to send the Holy Spirit. Because on that day, everyone on earth, from every tribe, nation, language, would be there present to then hear the message of the gospel. And check this out. This is what's so significant about God sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the Feast of Harvest of all days, right? Because it symbolized the idea on the day of the Feast of Harvest that there is now a harvest of world evangelism, a harvest of salvation that is ready for the world. Okay, even Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers, laborers into his harvest. What was happening right at before Pentecost? They were praying earnestly for 10 days. Right after Jesus resurrected, he had 40 days and there was 10 days between the time where he ascended and the Holy Spirit came for 10 days, they were praying earnestly. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes to empower evangelism and world mission. And he did that through the speaking of tongues in that area. See, the thing is, is that there's one other thing here that I want us to focus on that you have the speaking in tongues idea. This should, if you're a Bible scholar, you should be able to pick up on this. I know most of us aren't. um, So we wouldn't like pick it up as easily. But if you start back um, at the very beginning of the Bible, this is, this is pulling on the threads from Genesis 1, from the very first pages of the Bible. How so? All the way back in Genesis 1, going back to speaking in tongues, let me connect the dots here for you. God commanded Adam and Eve, the very first command in the whole, in the whole Bible is to multiply and to, be, and to fill the earth. You're like, that sounds like a pretty good promise. <laughs> All right, to multiply and fill the earth, not to stay in one spot. Okay, in fact, this comes to a point, though, where humanity, they're multiplying, they're growing, there's many, many generations. They're multiplying, but they're not filling the earth because it's easier to stay in, you know, the, the tight community, my family, I have security. So in a way, they weren't obeying God's command to fill the earth. They just wanted to stay in 
in that one area. And it comes to a point when after they've rejected this command of God for hundreds and hundreds of years and for many, many generations, where they build the Tower of Babel. This is in Genesis 11. The, the Tower of Babel was essentially their solution to keep humanity together so that they would never, ever have uh, problems with insecurity or resources. Think of it this way. The Tower of Babel was like, um, like a really, really big lifetime fitness, okay? Where like you don't really have to leave. It has everything you need right there. And uh, if you stay there, your life is going to be great. One culture, one nation, one language, all resources. Why would we ever spread out? Why would we ever fill the earth? That's kind of what they're thinking here. And so what God does at the Tower of Babel, because he says, no, I want you to fill the earth. There's a whole world out there. At the Tower of Babel, he strikes the people there and gives them many different languages so that they will spread out accordingly into tribe and nation that fits their language. Why did God do this? Because his original design for mankind was to fill the earth, for various cultures to grow, for various languages to form. God's plan from the very beginning was diversity of human cultures. Diversity of human cultures. And from the beginning, it has been man's inclination to resist that. We don't want diversity of culture. We want uniformity of culture. That feels more comfortable to us. Diversity, you know, is a very hot topic in our culture today. But as Christians, that is our word. If anybody should have a concept of what diversity is and why it is important, it should start with us. It started with our God back in Genesis 1. If anyone champions ethnic diversity, equal dignity of all human cultures, it should be us. Our culture says that it's important to them. Why? What's their framework for it? Well, just because it matters. We have a reason behind that. That's one thing that I love about our church here, especially the Woodway campus. Uh, we have, I think, over 80 plus different cultures represented at this campus alone amongst our three different services. That's pretty awesome. In Bible study classes meeting today, we have them meeting in speaking only in their own languages. I've hopped by a, a Persian class. They're speaking in Farsi. I don't understand a word they're saying. We had at one point a Mandarin Chinese class. Bulgarian class. This is really awesome. That is what it looks like to have a multi-ethnic, diverse church all united around this idea of Jesus and the gospel. Okay, so why is the Tower of Babel, to what we're talking about today with Acts 2, why is that important with Pentecost? Why bring that up? Because Pentecost, listen, is the reversal and the undoing of the Tower of Babel. Pentecost is the reversal and it's the undoing of this Tower of Babel. That Tower of Babel, humanity says, salvation happens through a uniform culture, okay? And God says, no, that's not where salvation is found. And so he scatters humanity throughout the earth into a diversity of ethnicities and cultures. But at Pentecost, God is saying loudly here that salvation is not by a particular culture or ethnic identity. He proves that by bringing them all together and then sharing the gospel to all of them at one time. For the first time the gospel is preached, listen, the first time the gospel is preached, it's preached in all languages. All languages, showing that it's for all people, all tribes, all nations. This is one thing that makes Christianity so different from every other religion on earth. Every other religion on earth is essentially deeply ethnocentric. What, what do I mean by that? When I was in seminary, I, I watched this, uh, this video of the growth of world religions um, uh, over the past 5,000 years. And what it would do is had this big picture of a, of a globe and then it had a different color for each religion as it grew and took over the earth in its different ways, okay? So what's interesting, though, is that Islam, where it starts, it grew, 
and its greatest concentration is still in that one area of the Middle East. Hinduism started in India, and it grew, and its greatest concentration is still in India. Buddhism started in South Asia, and its greatest concentration is where? Still South Asia. Mormonism started in Utah, and its greatest concentration is in Salt Lake City. All right? Same thing. I'm not, these are just facts. Only Christianity, only Christianity has a global concentration core that has moved all over the world. To start, its epicenter was the Middle East. Then the most concentrated area was in Europe. Then the most concentrated area was in North America. Then it was South America and Africa. And now the fastest growing concentrated core of evangelical Christianity is where? China and Korea. This should show us that Christianity is not tied to a particular ethnicity or culture. It's deeper than that. Our God loves the nations. He loves ethnic diversity. He loves all cultures, all languages, all people groups. And as Christians, we ought to be the biggest proponents of that as well. See, in the truest sense of the word, Pentecostal should not make us think of spiritual gifts, speaking in tongues, big spiritual experiences, that kind of thing. Pentecost should should remind us of world evangelism. Pentecostal, in its truest sense of the word, should make you think of mission. That's the right way to understand it here rooted in the text. So if you're taking notes, this is one thing the Holy Spirit does in our lives. This is to promote world evangelism, to show that the gospel is for all people. But let's keep moving here. We'll see what happens at Pentecost once the disciples start speaking in the tongues of the, of the relative tongues of these people. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the 11 disciples there, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Okay, do you know what the third hour of the day was? It's 9 a.m. Okay, basically he's saying this is Pentecost, a religious holiday. This is not a Texas A&M tailgate before a noon game. People are not drunk at 9 a.m. today of all days. Okay, verse 16, let's keep going. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Joel was a prophet in the Old Testament. Okay, you can flip your Bibles back into the Old Testament. It's like kind of near the end of the Old Testament. And Joel often foretold what would, what would happen with this Messiah and the church that would be founded. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, as he's quoting Joel, and I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Later on in the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that the Holy Spirit works in people's lives who long to know God, who long to know truth by giving them dreams that would prime them for gospel conversations that would later happen in their life. That might sound really strange to us non-Westerners who don't really have a spiritual concept, but this is going on all throughout our world right now. There's many stories, especially in the Middle East, where Christianity is hostile, where people who are sincere and they want to know truth, they want to know God, are having vivid dreams about this figure, this Jesus figure who they're longing to know. And then days later, weeks later, months later, they meet a Christian, hear the gospel, and get saved. This is happening all over the world. Keep going. Um, verse 18. Even on my male, and servant, male servants and female servants in those days, I'll pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. In other words, this gospel message will be for all people, the lowliest on earth, even the slaves. In that culture that was very hierarchy and patriarchal, that was, that was wildly, wildly uh, progressive. Verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Verse 20. The sun shall be turned to darkness. And the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. All right, this is describing a lunar eclipse, okay? The, the moon turning to blood, the sun turning to darkness. 
It could have been possible that on that day of Pentecost, it was during harvest, there was a lunar eclipse. Kind of interesting. You've heard of a harvest moon before, right? Okay, there's a, a weird sinking going on here. We don't have time to get into that. The, what I'm saying is that the prophecy of the Old Testament is the real deal. All right, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter quotes the book of Joel, how this day of Pentecost was prophesied from long ago, hundreds of years ago, and then he connects it to the gospel message. This is what he keeps saying. Men of Israel, so now he's talking just straight to them, not quoting Joel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God sending Jesus to save us was always plan A. This was not plan B. This was not like, oh, I guess there's just another way of salvation. This is the only way. This was plan A. This was plan A from the start before the world even began. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him, Jesus, to be held by it. This is important for us to understand because the resurrection is really the fulcrum of Christianity. If you take out the resurrection, everything else falls apart. Everything hangs on the resurrection. All right, what, is it, what does it mean though? Like, what, Why is it not possible for Jesus to not be held down by death? Have you ever thought about that? Like, like, was the resurrection just kind of like a magic trick? Or like, I'm God, like, you can't kill me. Like, like I don't know, like, how does it work? This is because the resurrection is, is because death could not hold Jesus down, not because he's, he's God, although he is that. What it's saying here is that death can't hold him down because Jesus lived a perfect life, okay? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, okay? Ever since the beginning, when Adam and Eve turned against God in the Garden of Eden, they rebelled against God, who is the source of life, and that ushered in death, everything that God was not. So Jesus came to undo that by his life, to redeem us back to God, the source of life. So if the wages of sin is death, rebelling against God, the source of life, then the wages of righteousness would be life, submitting to God, the source of life. And Jesus did that perfectly, which means that when he died for our sin, he paid for the wrath of God, but he was also righteous. So God raised him from the dead. This is why he was not able to be held down in death. Does that make sense? The resurrection wasn't just a magic trick, if you were. There's a lot of logic behind why he resurrected and why we can be sure that we're forgiven. If the resurrection happened, then he was perfect. And if he was perfect, then I can have his righteousness. If, he, if I can have his righteousness, you can have his righteousness. We can finally be saved and be brought in by God and redeemed. Okay? So Peter continues sharing this gospel, but it's interesting how he shares it. Look at verse 25. For David says concerning him, so now he's quoting King David from the Old Testament again about this Messiah figure. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I should not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or hell, or let your Holy One, your Messiah, see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make known to me, uh, you will make me full of gladness with your presence forevermore. In your Bible, that section, it's indented. Peter here is quoting uh, Psalm 16. If you want to go back to Psalm 16, it's like the last four verses. Then he turns back to the crowd again. He says, brothers, I say to you with confidence about King David that both he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. If you want to know if he's dead, go back and look at it. He's still there. Verse 30, though, being therefore a prophet. In other words, he's saying he was not prophesying about himself. He's prophesying about the Messiah. And knowing God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, Jesus, 
he saw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was referencing this resurrection. This is all back in the Old Testament. This is thousands of years ago. This is, he's referencing back to what Psalm 16 said, verse 32, keep going. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having perceived or received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he said himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If you notice in your Bible, that too is indented, which means he's quoting again another block of scripture. You can look it up. That's Psalm 110. So you want to write that next to your scripture. Psalm 110. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In other words, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is using Peter and is using Old Testament prophecy and illuminating the Word of God in the hearts of people. So if you're taking notes, this is the second thing the Holy Spirit does. He illuminates the Word of God in our hearts. He illuminates it. Did you notice something here? As the Holy Spirit is stirring Peter, what does Peter do? Is he just like start spouting off random stuff? What happens? He is bringing up scripture. He is showing its clarity, its truth to other people. In this short monologue alone, Peter references the book of Joel, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110. And this is interesting. I, as a nerd, I did a, a word count, okay, just because I was curious. In his speech, there is 532 words. 227 of those words are direct quotes from scripture. If you do the math, that's 43% of his entire gospel message was pure scripture. When he is being filled up by the Holy Spirit, 43% of everything that he says is direct, pure scripture. Here's something that we can glean from that, okay? If you want to know if the Holy Spirit is really speaking to you, you don't look in your Cheerios, okay? You don't look at that sign that has the number of the of the last digit of the number of the girl that you thought you should have called but didn't, and now you're like, oh, Lord, do I? He's saying, if, if you want to know how the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, it is rooted in Scripture. It's rooted in His Word. The Spirit of God never says anything that is different from the Word of God. The Spirit of God makes the Word of God illuminate within your heart, bursting alive with relevance, bursting alive with truth, conviction, and resonance. It, it's not just this theoretical stuff. It comes home. It says, that's me. I need that. This is, this, is, this is what I need. It becomes personal to you. You internalize it. And this is what happens exactly in this next verse. Look at verse 37. Keep going down the text. Now, when the crowds heard this, they were cut to the heart. Or some of your Bibles might say pierced in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, brothers, what shall we do? It is not just theoretical theology anymore. It hit home for them. So the once the word of God is illuminated, now what? You see this in verse 38. Peter says to them, we'll repent and be baptized every single one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. He's referencing geographically far off because remember they're from all over the world right now. Also spiritually far off, no matter what you've done, how far you are. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Okay, put simply, repentance means to turn from your sin and to follow Jesus. The word repent in Greek is actually the word metanoia. Metanoia, meta literally means change. Think about like metamorphosis. 
Noia means, it's the root word is noose for mind. Think about paranoia, right? You're paranoid, you're all in your head, your mind. It doesn't just mean a feeling of conviction. It means a new direction, a change of mind, a change of path. And this is the third thing the Holy Spirit does in your life. If you're taking notes, he brings repentance in your life. He, he doesn't just make you feel sorry for what you've done. He pushes you in a new direction. He pushes you in an altogether new direction. There are some denominations that say, if you can't speak in tongues, if you don't have these crazy spiritual experiences, maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you've grown up in a situation like that. Based on this text, that is just not true. Speaking in tongues, spiritual experiences, is never the litmus test for salvation here. Repentances. Repentances. Not spiritual, not spiritual gifts, not speaking in tongues, but a repentance, a new life, a new direction, one that's following Jesus. I think sometimes in our Christian culture even, we can be so obsessed with this idea of, of, of feeling close to God. Have you heard of that? And, 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 I, and I get that. God feels far, God feels close. That, that can totally be true at times. I'm not discounting that. But that's also very subjective, okay? Like, how do you really know, like, if you're feeling God in that moment or not? Like, God is God, like, over the universe. How do you know if you're, like, feel, if you want to truly feel God in your life in a way, something objective that you can really be anchored into, we see something here. Conviction of sin, a new direction in life. How do you know if you're feeling, you're, you're feeling close to God? You feel convicted about gossip. You feel convicted that you're not prioritizing the things of God. You feel convicted about watching pornography. You feel convicted about sleeping with your significant other or leading people on just for the sake of it. You feel convicted because you realize that's not, that's not what God would have me do. Listen, our unbelieving world, they don't feel conviction over that stuff. They just do it and they just suffer the consequences of it. And maybe they're sorry that like there was a fallout, but they're not inherently like sorry for it as itself. Does that make sense? If you want to know whether you are feeling God, if God is truly active in your life, do not use your feelings as a metric, okay? Use his word and repentance as a metric to knowing, okay? That's an objective way the spirit works in our lives. Keep going, verse 40. And with many other words, Peter bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So even though the sermon is preached, it was 500 words long, this was not the only thing he said. Okay, people had more questions. He had more scripture to read to them, bear witness to, explain things. But look what was the result. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. So 3,000 people, that's like a small basement church, becoming a mega church like that. <laughs> like it just exploded. So how is that possible? Only by the Holy Spirit saving people, putting them into community, and then sending them out on mission. But once people were saved, you know, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit led them from there. And I want to camp out here for the rest of the time that we have together. And uh, uh, this is where it, where it goes. Verse 42 to 47, you're going to see it indented in your Bible. This is kind of like a, a summation of what this kind of looks like, how it's put to fruition. This is what it says, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This is the 3,000 that were just saved. To the breaking of bread and to prayers and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, have that word again, those who were being saved. Okay, this is a substantive, substantive passage. 
In it, we see how the Holy Spirit is pushing this new church into mission, pushing into, a, into being a new culture amidst many different cultures. And, and, and I want us to focus particularly on verse 46. Verse 46, if look in your Bible, this is a really big one. I want you to underline it, circle it, highlight it, whatever you do. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So you see in that one little phrase, three different rhythms that was characteristic, symptomatic, if you will, of this infectious church movement already. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write these, th- these three things down. Day by day, there is a sense of consistency. Attending the temple regularly or together, there's this corporate gathering for worship and then breaking of bread in their homes. You have this idea of personal connection, this idea of personal connection. With those three, th- with those three criteria, okay, you can pretty much tell the health of a Christian, period. This is the Holy Spirit at its most powerful moment in church history. And those are the three things that you see. That's not a coincidence. So I want us to look at the first criteria, day by day. Day by day, what does that really mean? Does this mean every single day I have to go to church? No, you don't, okay? But day by day is harping on this big idea of consistency, regularity. The Holy Spirit was bringing about a consistency in their lives. Diagnostic question for us all to consider here, okay? When you look at your Christian life, when you look at your faith, you think of things, you say, is consistency characteristic with my following Christ? Is consistency a characteristic of how I follow Christ? Do I read my Bible regularly? Not every day, not trying to be legalistic. That'd be great if you do, but is it regular? Do I go to small group consistently? Okay, I know things come up, but is it consistent? Do I make it a point to go to church each weekend? I know things come up, you travel one weekend, whatever, but is it, is it a priority? Or would you say, ah, well, my walk with Christ is inconsistent, maybe at best. I don't really read my Bible. I mean, maybe when I'm feeling like it, which doesn't really happen a lot. Okay, that's, that's true of many of us. It's kind of like working out. You don't really work out because you feel like it. You do it because you need it to be a regular part of your life. Maybe I'm in a small group. Like I'm in the group me chat, but like ah, once a month tops. I don't really go to church. Well, like maybe sometimes when it's like convenient or there's like that really good speaker that I like. I mean, then I'll go. Um, you know, maybe you say sometimes I am consistent, other times not so much. That's fair too. I get it. This young adult season is a very transient one. But the question is though, where does consistency come from? Have you ever thought about that? Where does consistency come from? How do you get consistency? Consistency is all about priority. Consistency is all about priority. What you consistently do the most, you prioritize the highest. Well, you consistently do the most, you prioritize the highest. Maybe for you, that's working out. You do not miss a day. That's great. It's, it's just a big priority for you. But it's like, well, why don't I read my Bible like each day? Because it's not a priority as much. Or for some of you, it's work, okay? I mean, you're there like five days a week, you know? I mean, you're never late. You're always there right at 9 a.m. Like, you really prioritize it. Some of you are like, uh, no, that's not overly prioritizing it. Like, it's work. It's normal. I have to be there five days a week, and I have to get there at 9 a.m. That's just the way it works. Okay, true. That's a priority because you don't want to lose your job, right? <laughs> All right, this is what's kind of funny to me. All right, I'm, I'm not trying to step on toes. I'm trying to be pastoral. This is Pastor Austin, not Friend Austin. Um, <laughs> young adults are not great at showing up to church. You're not great at showing up to things consistently. Oh, my bad, man. I, I slept in again. I, I just wasn't feeling too well. Oh, my bad. I'm 30 minutes late. I might, know, I might as well just not go at all. What if we treated our jobs this way? Right? Like, 
Like, like what if we treated church the way that we treated our jobs, though? Then we'd be like, our, our lives would look so differently. Why do we, like, treat our jobs like, I can't be late and I got to be there? But with church, we're like, well, give or take, you know. Why? Like, why? It's about priority. That's all. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad or whatever, but I just, I want to call into question, how do we frame our lives? What is most important to us? Most of the time, our struggle with inconsistency isn't because we struggle with inconsistency. It's because we struggle with priority. Okay, when it comes to coming to church, going to small group, reading your Bibles, what would your track record suggest about what your priorities are? What would it, God and his word and his people or something else? Listen, I get it. I know things come up. I know things like you're not able to attend small group because like your mom is sick and you might have COVID and please don't come if that's the case, okay? Um, or, you know, like something, something, a deadline comes up, you got to get it done. I understand, all right? That happens. That's life. But it's a different story, right, when it's once a month, once a month here, once every six weeks there, read my Bible every 10 days. Okay, consistency has everything to do with where our priorities are. I want us to think about our priorities as we go about this week. Let's look at the second thing, attending the temple together. Attending the temple together, the second criteria of the Holy Spirit moving powerfully in this church, attending the temple together. What does this mean? They went to church together. (laughs) That's all it means. They weren't going to church alone. They weren't going to church every now and then. They weren't going to small group on Thursday and then not coming to church on Sunday. They weren't just going to Sunday Bible study and then leaving. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm, I know I'm stepping on some toes here, but listen, like I want to be faithful to God's word here. And if we want to see growth, if we want to see the Holy Spirit move in our lives, we want to, we want to reap the, what has been sown. We have to make this a priority. See worship service. I get it. It's not a, a spiritual buffet item that you pick and choose from because you like that speaker or whatever. This is really ultimately about obedience to Jesus Christ. See, I, I know I don't like the music. Well, I don't like the speaker this week. I, I get it. I have my preferences like the rest of you, okay? But we have to remember something key here, that worship is not about us, ultimately. Worship has less to do with the way that it caters to me and more to do about the God who has saved me, okay? It, that's what worship is. Worship, the word even worship means, if you think about it, worship, it, it, it is a root word of worth, worth-ship, what you give your worth to. It's not about receiving. It's about showing your worth, showing what is worth to you, what is worthy of your time, what is worthy of your worship. And so if you're here this morning, you're a visitor, this is your first time checking out Second, great. Glad to have you. That's awesome. If, if Second is not for you, that's okay. But hear me out. You have to get plugged in somewhere. I don't care. Well, I do care where it might be, but there are many good churches. There are many good churches here in the city as long as you're connected into one, okay? That's what matters the most, a biblical church living on mission. Let's look at the last piece here, breaking bread in their homes. What does this third criteria, breaking bread in their homes, mean? This is really getting at, like, breaking bread. Am I gluten-free? I don't know if I want to do this. Breaking bread is about personal connection, personal connection. Breaking bread means sharing meals. It means that's where relationship happens. In their homes means hospitality welcoming people in. This is precisely why we have small groups at our church and why we always push you to be involved in a small group, home groups that meet throughout the week. That's where, that's where real life change is going to happen. See, our saying here in small groups is that you, small groups is the place, home groups is the place where you go deeper in God's word and you get closer to God's people. You go deeper in God's word and you go closer in God's, you get closer with God's people. I might realize, I realize that this class, 50, 60 people right now, this is awesome. 
But real deep relationships are probably not going to happen here. You're going to meet a lot of people. That's great. We want you to get connected, networked, co-ed groups. That's awesome. But small groups is where life change really happens, where you get closer to people and deeper in God's word. And some of you are like, yeah, I know, Austin, you bug me to get into a small group. If I'm coming to a small group each week, I, all, I get the weekly text, whatever. Okay. Am I bugging you? No. I am begging you. I am not bugging. I am begging you to be a part of a small group. Why? You need friends. You need community. God will show up in your life and change you and convict you and reveal things to you through his body, through the church. Okay? I, I'm, I know I'm bugging you. I know I'm begging you. But please just be a part of one. You need it so much more than you think you do. And this is why it was so present in the very first church. And, and here's the thing. You can't follow Jesus alone. You can't know the Bible alone. And if you think you can, you're fooling yourself because even Jesus was in a small group. Okay? Boom. <laughs> Roasted. Drop the mic. He was in a small group with 12 guys. And you're not better than Jesus. So our vitality as a believer is inextricably connected to those three things. Okay? Consistency corporate worship and small group. You've got to have those three things together. Our faith will rise and fall where those three things in our life rise and fall, me including, me included there. And the Holy Spirit is pushing you to give yourself to those three things for your own sake, but not just your own sake, also for the people around you. See, what you don't realize is maybe not coming to small group isn't just about you. It's about that guy who's new, who's trying to meet friends, who's trying to get connected. It has, everything, it has just as much to do with you as it does the other person who might be new. So the Holy Spirit is pushing you to give yourselves to these three things, not just for you, but for what can happen in your midst. And this is what I want to close with. There are certain fruits that only take off in the soil of these three things. Certain fruits. What are those things? Certain fruits like unity, charity, generosity. Those things only happen in the, in the context, in the soil of that kind of, uh, uh, of consistency in corporate worship and small group. Let's not forget, all right, that the first church was highly, highly diverse. People from all over the known world, different languages, different perspectives, different political convictions, perhaps, different backgrounds. They were very, very different. And here's the reality. Our church is highly diverse as well. There are people in this class right now who do not think like you do who do not vote like you do, who have a different perspective than you do. There are Fox News people in here and CNN people in here. There are Ivy League people in here and people who didn't go to college in here. That's okay. But it's clear here, the admonition is that diversity does not have to mean division. Diversity does not have to mean division. It can be a unity. The Holy Spirit seeks to push you towards a unity that is deeper than all these superficial divisions. Whether you're educated or not, whether your skin color is this or not, the Holy Spirit seeks to push you in a way that will make you united. And that happens only when you're in proximity to one another. You can't have unity with someone that you're not in proximity with. It just doesn't happen. So, so the unity is all about what you share your commonalities with someone. Like I'm united with that guy. We have a sense of camaraderie because we both went to, the, we both went to Baylor. Or we're, we're united because like we both play golf. Like we're both united because like we both look the same, vote the same, talk the same, have the same friend group, grew up in the same neighborhood. I get it. Like there's nothing wrong with that. But how do you have unity with someone who's not those things, right? Because the Holy Spirit is pushing you in this text to see that your greatest commonality is deeper than all of these world superficial angles that divide us. The Holy Spirit is showing us that our greatest commonality is our common problem, that we're a sinner in need of God's grace. 
We have a common need for salvation. We have a common Savior given to us in Jesus Christ, all people. And when that is our commonality, we can, be, we can find that unity that we're all trying to find and can never figure out how to get. See, our world would say, we want diversity and we want unity, and that happens through identity politics or critical theory, but even that fails. It's not going deep enough. Only the gospel goes deeper than those things because it's based not on your skin color, it's based on your heart. And that, nothing else does that. When this sense of unity is grasped, something happens when the church unites on this idea. And that's verse 43, if you want to look in your Bible. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Awe. Circle that word in your Bible, awe. This is another thing the Holy Spirit does in your life. He produces awe in you. Awe. Awe at the gospel and awe at this God. Awe is what will win the world to Jesus. Not snarky Facebook posts. Not your subtweets. Not your voting ballot. Not the way that you argue with people. But awe. Awe at who God is when we're united on that together. What makes sense to our culture is a Tower of Babel culture. Where everything is uniform and where we agree on everything absolutely. And anything that's not is hate speech. That's the Tower of Babel. Only a gospel-centered community that goes deeper than those things, can actually give you a deeper unity that's beyond the superficial. And they were in awe of the unity that happened. And look at verse 44 to conclude, because I see the other class just got out. <clears throat> and all people were together and had all things in common. They had all things in common. I thought they were different. That's, they had lots of differences. What it's meaning here is that they had different background, race, education, country of origin. All things in common means they treated each other according to their commonalities, not according to their differences. They treated each other according to their commonalities, not their differences. So question for us, do we treat people based on the superficial differences from us or like, you know, background, education, language, political, religious, whatever, or do we primarily treat them by their commonalities that that gospel outlines that we're a common sinner, that we're in common need of salvation, that we have a common savior in Jesus, that this is a church culture that brings unity. And this is what it looks like. If you, have, if you look at the very end of your uh, passage, end of your Bible, your uh, Bible text, sorry, it's going to say that, they, that the world, uh, that many others came to know faith and God added to their numbers daily. God added to their numbers daily. How does that happen? One friend messaged me uh, last night and he said, what if, what if the church was known for the way that we legitimize the gospel in our life? How do we legitimize the gospel in our life? So question, Maybe the world would say around us, you know, I know a lot of crazy people who are acting belligerently, militantly, angrily, immaturely, but you know what? Like those Christians, like they're different. Like I don't agree with them, but at least they're cordial. At least they listen. At least they don't get angry and hostile because I'm different. At least, you know, they have a peace and a deeper sense that goes beyond the world. Like COVID-19 doesn't freak them out as much as other people because they have a hope not based in this world, but based in eternity. You know, I, I, they lost their job, but somehow they have a deeper peace because they believe in a providential God. It's refreshing to be around these Christians. I mean, I can't help but admire how they love and care, especially the, for those who hate them, quite frankly. Maybe there is something to this Jesus that they follow after all. See, in a world of disunity, we can show the real unity. In a world of devices, divisiveness, we can show where true togetherness is found. And it's found truly only in Christ so day by day, you have the last word there, day by day, God was adding to their numbers greatly. Day by day, the Great Commission is a day by day thing. It doesn't mean you go to India or China or whatever for a week. The Great Commission is right now, 
day by day, as you're living your life with the people around you, in this room, at work, with your family, really harping on those ideas of consistency, corporate worship, and small group, and giving yourselves to those things and seeing the Holy Spirit work in and through you. All right, let's go ahead and pray. We'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we had this morning to look into Acts 2. I thank you uh, for this gospel that unites us, because God, otherwise we wouldn't find unity, at least the one that would last. So I pray that in a world of, of division, of divisiveness, you would show us what true unity is, and that through us, you would help the world around us see who you are as a result. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Make us people like that. Amen.